1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this week we're breaking it up again a little bit, getting a little more diverse in who we talk to and what we talk about. This time I have a musician, somebody whose music has been in heavy rotation in my personal music collection for a long time, and especially lately, Derek Webb. Now if you're not familiar with Derek, that's okay. You will get to know him and you will get some free music. So I highly encourage you, right off the bat, to go check out the show notes for this episode at beyondthetodolist.com slash 22. Derek and I talked about the 20 years that he's been a musician, 10 of those in a folk rock band, the other 10 as a solo artist. We also talk about the time before that, his superhero origins of his passion and gift for music, and the moment he knew he was good at it. Also, how he and his wife, Sandra McCracken, managed their lives as full-time parents as well as both being full-time solo artists. We also talk about the Catalyst experiment that led to his involvement and co-creation of the Noisetrade.com business and why it's very smart viral marketing and goodwill creating for bands these days to use that tool as part of their overall marketing effort, as well as building their fan base and Communicating with their tribes. We also talk about Derek's last two projects, his album Control and his other project, Sola Me, and how they start a conversation about technology addiction. And then we touch a little bit on what Derek is doing right now, working on his next album coming out this year called I Was Wrong, I'm Sorry, I Love You. So, anyway, I'm really excited for you to hear this interview. I had a lot of fun doing it, and in fact, Derek's very much a talker, self-confessed. And so, this is probably the episode you'll hear me talk the least on, and that's not a bad thing. So, anyway, enjoy. Well, this week I'm talking to musician Derek Webb. He's been a musician for 20 years. First 10 in a mid-90s folk band called Cabin's Call from Texas, and then the second half as a solo artist, uh, folk singer, songwriter, who has been less concerned with categories, or being categorized, I should say, and then is also married to solo artist Sandra McCracken. Welcome to the show, Derek. Thanks, man. Great to be with you. Is there anything you want to add to that bio? (laughs) Uh, We stay
2: pretty busy, so if I start trying to say it all, boy, we'll be here all day, me just trying to name off every random thing. I mean, I'm just grateful 20 years in to still have a job.
1: Right. I mean, it's been actually longer than that. I mean, if you think about it, you've been involved with music or at least in love with music maybe since you were a young kid. And didn't that kind of start with your brother?
2: Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing that you would know that. I, yeah. So my mom was like really super musical. She was a just a really gifted pianist and she studied under an amazing pianist in, in Tennessee and she was kind of mentored and she knew all about music and how to read music and how to write music. And she also had a great ear for music. And so what I got from her was her ear. Like, I don't know how to read a lick of music. I, I I just did a string session for one of my songs where some string players came and a guy, you know, wrote out all the, all the stuff on staff paper. And, and I looked at it and there's no way I could have identified it as my, as my song. Uh, There's no way I would have known it. And so I didn't get that part from her, but from a really young age, I, you know, like single digits, I had an, a real interest in music and and seemed to have an ear for it. But it wasn't until my brother, as you mentioned, my brother's four years older than me, and I thought he was and still think he's like the coolest guy in the world. So he wanted to play the bass. And he came to my mom and said that he wanted to play the bass guitar. And my mom said, well, you could do that, but you got to take guitar lessons first. I'm not going to have you just learn how to play bass. You need to learn how to play you know, like guitar first, and then you could move to bass. And he kind of wasn't interested. Almost immediately, same conversation. He wasn't into that, so he left the room. I overheard the whole thing, and I so I kind of sheepishly snuck over and said, "Well, I'll, I'll take it. To, I'll, I'll learn how to play the guitar." <laughs> and so I think I took one lesson during which I got a book that had all the chords, pictures, and names of all the chords in it. And the lesson itself, even at you know six years old, that lesson seemed to be kind of a waste of time. Because I thought, well, all I need this book. So I took one lesson, and then I just taught myself from the book. And that was it. You know, that was the, immediately the thing that I had been waiting for in my, in my short five years while I watched my friends kind of take to sports or take to reading books and academics, things like that. I didn't take to any of that stuff. But I really took to that. I really took to music.
1: Yeah. Right off the bat, you, you kind of recognized, if not the talent for it, at least the passion for it, if not the science for it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, and I just, I definitely loved it. But I also, I feel like I almost immediately, I don't know that I would have intuited this the same way then, but I clearly had the gifts for it. Like I clearly had some internal wiring to be kind of predisposed to do it because it just came so easily. And I was one of those kids, my whole, I'm still one of those kids. I'm I'm almost 40, and I'm still one of those kids that. Everything I try, so many things that I try are just so frustrating for me. I'm just, I try things, I want to be good at things, I want to be able to do things, and I just can't do it. I'm just, it's really frustrating. Music was the one thing, has been the one thing, and definitely it was at that point in my life, that was just finally something came easy. And it was so easy. Like I just didn't understand why everybody why it wasn't that easy for everybody. And and that's because everybody has kind of particular giftings, you know, and, yeah. and that was mine.
1: So wasn't there a point in time kind of ironically that a school bully was the one who gave you the approval?
2: <laughs> yes, this is amazing. It's amazing that you already kind of have pieces of these stories. Because um, this is exactly how it happened. Yeah. So I had been playing guitar for at least 10 years. At this point, I was a teenager. I was in junior high school. So I was probably 15. and I had no idea if I was any good or not, what I knew is that I spent 10 hours a day and up all night practicing the guitar and learning how to play every record I could get my hands on. I would learn how to play every song, every guitar solo. I could pick it all up by ear. So I was just learning, 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 learning. It's all I did. And I was like a hermit. I'm an introverted, you know, believe it or not. I mean, I'm a talker, but I'm an introverted guy. And so I would spend all my time not studying in my room, playing the guitar for 10 years. And it was in junior high school and we had this class called careers class and it was a, you know, there was a project where you kind of have to come in and make a big poster of all your interests and things like that. So I put all this stuff about guitar playing, stuff, pages I pulled out of Guitar Player Magazine and this one other guy who's one of these guys who's friends with everybody in a school, like he kind of had no allegiances picked up on it. And after class, he said, Hey, I didn't know you played guitar. And he's like, I play guitar and we should play, you know, we should hang out sometime and play guitar. And I was so thrilled that anybody, somebody was talking to me. I wasn't great at, at that either. So I didn't really have any friends. And, you know, he said, you know, we should hang out and we should play. So I was thrilled at that. So he came over to my house maybe that week. And that was the moment that I figured out that I was good. Like, I didn't know for 10 years if I, if I was good or if I wasn't, or, if, but this guy came over and kind of freaked out. So he immediately said, okay, I got to call some friends. Like, is it okay if I invite a few other friends over? And I was like, well, this is just the best day of my life. (laughs) You're going to invite even more friends over than, you know, absolutely. So he invited over these other guys. But one of these guys he invited over was one of the most popular guys in school. Basically, the guy who sat in front of me on the bus, and he and his buddy just made fun of me and berated me every single day because I was – kind of into skateboarding. It was the only other thing but music that I ever kind of enjoyed and was good at. And, you know, so I was kind of a skateboard punk. He was like, coolest guy in the school, athlete, name it, you know, everybody loved him, girls loved him. And he showed up. Now, apparently, they had started a band, this guy I was in this class with and this popular guy. And the guy was like, you got to trust me, you got to come see this guy play guitar. So he came and begrudgingly came over to the the house of the kid who he loved to make fun of and watched me play guitar for a few minutes. And uh, my friend from the class just said, just play, just do anything, just show him anything. So I played for a few minutes and then they went out of my room and talked in my hallway and basically agreed that they had to have me in their band. So the guy had to come back in and say, all right, you can't skateboard anymore. I don't want you, I'm not going to hang out with some guy who wears skate clothes and is, is some kind of skate punk. So you have to, you have to drop all that. But but I want you to be in my band, and at that point in my life, man, I was like, yes, sir. I mean, I was like that day. I literally told my mom to take me to the store so I could buy regular jeans and buy a button. <laughs> and like like I so wanted to be in a band. I wanted to be in a band since I was six years old, and uh, none of my friends knew how to do anything yet, you know. So that was a big deal. That changed everything. And so I, I and and we wound up all becoming really good friends. And you know that was a, and it was pretty serious. We recorded some music. We played. All over Houston, and you know that was a big deal for me. Yeah.
1: So then you're you're playing in this band. You've always wanted to be in a band. You've kind of figured, hey, something's happening here. Graduate high school, which I know for you, like me, was like, whoa, I, I actually graduated high school. Then you're you're moving into and you did like what a semester of college and met up with the guys from Cadman's Call.
2: Yeah. So I wound up. I was in a really really great band, a different band, but I, I had gone the only other band I'd been in. And it was as serious as the first. And we were better than that band. It was a really, I was with much older guys, college guys, my senior year of high school or my junior year of high school. And that got me into a little bit of trouble. We got into, basically that band broke up because we got into a really bad car wreck on the way. We were playing a show in Waco at Baylor University, got into a car wreck that totaled my my buddy's truck and damaged a bunch of the gear. And I wound up in the hospital with stitches and almost flew out the windshield. And it was like really dramatic. And it broke up our band is the bottom line. And so by the time I graduated high school, I wasn't in a band. I didn't really know what to do at that point because my social structure was gone. Because because I wasn't really going to college because I barely got out of high school. So there's no way I was thinking about college, really. And wound up at the community college in Houston just because that's what you do. And during that first semester, got a call from this buddy of mine, Aaron Tate, who I'd gone to high school with. And he said that he was in Fort Worth in college and met this guy mm-hmm who was starting a band and was going to play his songs, because Aaron was a songwriter, but not really much of a performer or musician. So he was going to write the songs, and this guy and his friends were going to play the songs. And since Aaron didn't want to be in the band and be the guy's other guitar player, he needed a guitar player, and Aaron thought of me, because he knew I was into folk rock and Indigo Girls and acoustic music, and he thought I might dig the style of it. So he asked if he could give this guy my number, and I had nothing going on. So I said, sure, man, You know, totally. So I met up with this guy Cliff Young, who was Cliff's friend from college, was Aaron's friend from college, and we just hit it off immediately. And I essentially just joined that band immediately. And as soon as I joined that band, I quit college the same day, you know, dropped out of whatever classes. It was a half a semester, and then I was out of there. And that was Cademan's.
1: During all this, though, your parents didn't really have any knowledge of that, did they?
2: Yeah. They didn't know that I had joined the band until the end of that school year, and they thought that I was still going to college. My brother, who I had moved in with just to have some kind of college experience, you know, I was going to the community college, but he was in med school. We were both living in downtown Houston in an apartment and I would get dressed and leave every morning and drive around until I knew he had left to go to med school. And then I would come back home and he thought that I was in school or I would go hang out with Cliff and we'd you know, and we'd rehearse songs and learn new ones. And so everybody in my family thought I was in college And it wasn't until the band, like the end of that school year, when we kind of were starting to get good and getting some gigs. And that was when I confessed that the whole year I had not been in school. (laughs) So they forgave me.
1: Yeah. And wasn't it that you brought them a check? You showed you because you didn't know what to do with it.
2: I think maybe what it was, if I can, if I'll correct my own mythology here, but I think what it was is that I told them by the end of the school year, I told them I was going to quit school to try to pursue the band. I didn't tell them that I had already quit two weeks into the semester and I'd been lying to them for months and months and months. But it was maybe the next year or maybe the year after that, when the band got signed and we put out our first, our first record with a record label on which I had written a bunch of songs. And I had no idea that you could make income as a songwriter. I mean, I just didn't know how any of that worked and I'd never made any money and the band really didn't make any money. Um, although we survived and we, you know, but we didn't make any money. All of a sudden, I got this publishing check in the mail for all the records we'd sold and all the songs I'd written that were on it, and it was a five figure check. I mean, it was it was freaked me out. I didn't have a bank account. I mean, I didn't know what to. I didn't know. I was like, "What do I do? Do I take it down to Taco Bell and cash it in for tacos?" I, I had no idea. So I had to go to my parents to find out what to do with the check. And it was at that point that I said, "It's a real job now. I'm gonna I'm gonna be okay. I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna make real money." But while we're at it. I didn't just quit school at the end of that last semester. I actually never went in the first place. <laughs> I f- felt safe enough to ask forgiveness for the whole enchilada.
1: So then you guys are touring. You're doing the band life. You're feeling like, well, maybe this dream of being in a band is actually happening. Yes. Like May of two thousand, I believe it is. You met Sandra.
2: Yep. So the band was a great job for ten years, you know. And I, I, we grew up together. I mean, you know, you, you know, going from being. 18 to being 25, 26 years old, you know, growing up on a 40-foot bus with uh, you know, six people. It goes beyond just becoming best friends. I mean, it's you know, it, it was my it was like family in all the best and the worst ways. We'd had a decent amount of success and we had the luxury of creating an environment around ourselves where we kind of created our own reality a little bit. So relational patterns, you know, things were kind of allowed to go on that probably were not super normal. And so it was when I met Sandra, which is when the band, when Cademans was in Nashville working on a record and Sandra lived in Nashville, had graduated from college in town and was making her living as an indie artist and had put out her first record and was gigging around town. And we just inevitably, as we were meeting different musicians in in town while we were here working on the record, ran into her and got to see her play and stuff. And And I just fell for her immediately. So as she kind of came into our little insulated reality and world that we created around ourselves for 10 years, um, she was kind of like, so do you know that this is crazy? Do you know that the way you guys relate to each other is completely insane and completely probably really unhealthy? Like, do you know that? Is it always like this? Or do you guys just do it, but you know you're doing it? And I was like, what are you talking about? I had no idea what she was talking about. So it was good. I think it was a really ten years in, man. I mean, I think it was a really good disruption for her to kind of come in and pull the roof off of it a little bit. And it was time for us to. It was time for me to become a grown up, you know. And some of those relational things needed some disruption. And so that was healthy. It was really good. That's probably the reason that I'm still so close with everybody in that band today is because we didn't keep going the way we were going. We we, we were just still acting like kids, and we weren't kids anymore and um she helped me to kind of see that and but it was it was it went beyond that it was really more that uh, something about having somebody commit to you and love you in a particular way that just makes you brave it just gave me a certain measure of courage i'd never had before and suddenly things that i had been seeing for the for 10 years in this band as we traveled around but never wanted to write songs about for fear that it could like be a disruption in the band's ability to make a living because i would be talking about things that i was seeing in churches and places where the band was getting to go that most people don't get to go and see things most people don't get to see. And suddenly I thought, you know, somebody needs to talk about this. There's things that need to be talked about because some of this stuff isn't right. And I had that stuff in my head for a long time. It was never brave enough to write those songs. And not until I met Sandra that I feel like I could and should write those songs. And that was a major shift. And all of a sudden the tone of the songs, the content of the songs changed. And that wasn't something Cademans was really interested in. Ten years into a career, you know, in defending a particular calling that the band had and a particular position that the band had built, they weren't interested in risking um, their reputation to sing some of these songs, but I was. And they understood that, and that's when we kind of split. And it was very amicable. Like, they understood that it was clearly important for me to go sing these songs, but they knew that they needed to protect something that they had built. And I understood, and they understood, and... So it felt more like them sending me out it didn't feel like us breaking up. You know, it really did feel more like you need to go out and do that. We want you to. And I really wanted them to continue doing what they were doing, you know?
1: Yeah. So in other words, Sandra did not Yoko Ono Cabin's call.
2: That was, you know, that you know, it was hyster- there were hysterical comparisons to that. No, she was definitely not the Yoko Ono of the band.
1: So she comes in and kind of makes you reassess all the ra- relationships in your life. And you guys kind of start figuring out, okay, she's got her solo career. You've got these songs that obviously are kind of leaning you towards your own solo career. And then you're married and you're both solo artists. And this is kind of before you both have, I mean, you have got young kids now, but this is, we're talking like 10 years ago now. How do you kind of unpack the, okay, well, how how are we going to do this where we're both solo artists living in the same house, doing our separate stuff? Do we do stuff together? How do those conversations work out?
2: We almost immediately knew that we did not want to be a husband-wife duo. And we wanted to absolutely guard against that anyone ever mistaking us as some kind of a husband-wife duo. We just did not want that. I I felt at that moment like I was just starting my solo career, although I'd been a, I'd had a career, you know, and been a songwriter for more than, you know, for 10 years at that point. But I was just really getting started I was brand, you know, I just, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just getting started. Now, she was years into her solo career. She was really ahead of me. And because she already had her first going on her second record out, and I hadn't, and I'd put a bunch of Kate, I'd worked on all these Cademan's records, but I had never put in my own stuff out. And so it kind of felt like, even though our band had sold a lot of records and gotten some notoriety, it kind of felt like we were on very even footing. Um, and it was good that we agreed that we didn't want to combine our powers, so to speak to do one thing and be a band or be a duo or something. We really both wanted to stay separate. And at the time we felt like we kind of had to, because the songs I was writing, I was really wanting to say some things to kind of, I really had some things I I thought were important to say to the church. Mm -hmm. Like it's where I had been for the last 10 years to that culture. She was not really at that place in terms of her career. She was more just a general market singer songwriter. she, Never really played. She was never interested in doing anything that could be categorized in any way as like religious or she just wanted to write great songs. She just wanted to write, really make great Americana music. Like she wasn't interested in the other, anything about her belief system, which every artist has some belief system. She wasn't interested in that belief system becoming part of her marketing, Um, which is essentially what happens when you get into music that's categorized like religious or Christian or something like that. And I felt like I needed to be there for a few more minutes you know, after Cademan's because I had some things specifically I wanted to say to that group of people. And so we wanted to keep our records and our whole things really separate, and we really were careful about that. And I also, because I thought I had so much respect for her and thought she was such a strong artist, I wanted to make sure that nobody came up to her at any point in the future and said that nobody ever framed her career as, Boy, things sure took off right after she married that guy in that band because she had been working so hard at her thing and she deserved the credit for that. And I didn't want, because I had been in a band that had sold a decent amount of records, I didn't want to come in and be mistaken for the reason that she was making it or the reason that she was succeeding at it. That was just purely her hustle. I mean, just her work ethic, her great writing just her skill. I mean, that's why she was doing well and why she still does well. And so we really wanted to keep it all real separate, you know, and just, and I wanted to guard her career from my influence. So it's funny, like we would play shows together those first years and it still happens occasionally. We've been married for 12 years and it still happens occasionally where we play a show and she would open for me or I would open for her, depending on the city we were in. And we would tell some story about our kids, or make some mention about our, of our kids or something, and afterwards people will be freaked out because they had no idea we were married, because you know she still plays music under her maiden name, although she took my name when we got married. But so it's easy, you know. So I, I feel like we're succeeding when people have when people see us on stage and have no idea we're married. We have done it. We've done it correct.
0: Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search Slash to do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed.
1: Yeah, it was during this time period somewhere in there. She played a show at the uh used to be an old church. It was a coffee house on campus at uh Indiana Wesleyan University, which is where I went to school and and you were there too. And this is where I uh Kind of enter in the story a tiny bit was she's doing a show. You're there. One of my friends knew either um, In God's Country, the U2 U- U- song In God's Country or the opening song. What is it? You covered it on Democracy, um, Where the Streets uh, Have No Name. And it was one of those two. And I can't remember which one it was. But I know my friend who was a huge U2 fan got such a kick out of the fact that caveman's would play one of those all the time. Huh. See, he asked you to do it, and you were doing it there with, with everybody. It was kind of fun. Wow. It was hilarious.
2: We actually got into trouble back in the, you know, back in the 90s, uh, back when we were playing some colleges and we would play covers like that. I remember one particular night in, at Vanderbilt, we were playing this big show in some in some big theater on the campus, and we played. I remember that the room itself, the theater we were in, reminded me of the theater from my high school where, I, where we always had the Battle of the Bands. And so it, so I just, it looked just like it to me. And so I kept playing all these songs that I used to cover in these bands in high school. So I was playing like, you know, I think like Bon Jovi and like a Mr. Big cover and like literally I would go into the songs and the band would just jump in and join me. And, and, and usually that stuff went off great. Like the, you know, crowds thought it was hysterical and they loved it and they would sing. And I think we all sang living on a prayer. I remember we all, the whole, we had 2000 people singing, living on a prayer that night some guy came up in the middle of the show. Literally walked to the front of the stage and waved us down and interrupted the show to confront us about the fact that we were we were playing what he would call quote secular music in the middle of what he would call a quote Christian concert. And you know I remember that stuff coming up a lot in those days, and um, you know so that yeah we we were always very keenly aware of uh, every time we'd play songs like that we were we would be at the ready yeah for come up. And it's just amazing, you know, that that used to happen.
1: But I've been in that same place where you're, you're kind of, you're too religious for for one crowd and and two, you're you're not religious enough for the other crowd. And you got to do what you got to do. You do your own thing. So,
2: yeah, Yeah. well, and we, and we, it was, it was calculated. I mean, we were doing it, in order to be a disruptive element for, for people who've been raised a particular way, because several people, a lot of people in our band have been raised that way. So we were wanting to push those particular buttons for people. That's exactly the reaction we wanted to get. We wanted people to have to examine that, some of that stuff and rethink those categories. And so we weren't doing it flippantly. We weren't doing it, you know, we weren't parading our liberty. We were, we were literally doing it for a reason. So anyway.
1: So then you guys have young kids now and you know you've done you've done this whole thing where you've kind of either toured with each other or toured separately meanwhile taking turns in the the studio at your house to record your albums how do the kids work into it how do you in other words as i just recently the other day watched the making of desire like dynamite your wife's brand new album she talks a little bit about you guys working collaboratively from start to finish and and how you maintain your family rhythms as you're doing that. Can you speak into that a little bit?
2: Yeah. I mean, honestly, I mean, so our kids are four and five, so this is something we're still figuring, very much figuring out. But the thing that's great about our job, the job we both have in music, is that it's very, very flexible, which is really good for this particular season of life because our kids being so little, they're just starting into a little bit of school but they've never ever been in any kind of social structure. Like they've never gone to um, in a daycare or a, a th- uh, you know they, they're just with us all the time. And, and and we have this great luxury that I'm sure every parent wishes they had. We're so grateful, you know. We we're with our kids almost all the time. And to, when we tour, we've toured with them. And we, I mean, when they were infants. We had them, you know, we would put a pack and play in the back room of a bus and they toured. I mean, we always toured with our kids. We'd put them in the bunks of the bus and tour, you know, I mean, we'd set the pack and play up next to the merch table. I mean, we've, we did it from day one. So they are very resilient, but they hang out with us a lot. And that's something, you know, that's a result of the job that we have because when we're home, which we are during the week's. If we're like, I'm working on a record right now, Sander just finished a record, you know, we're always working on something in, in our studio. There's always something going on in the studio. We've been working on overlapping albums for the last four straight years, literally without a break in the studio. So there's always work going on, but you can kind of set your own schedule to it. And so if this, if the, one of the kids or both the kids are in school one day, then we can both work. Um, if one is, then we'll trade off depending on whose who's record we're working on and You know, like we have been splitting weekends recently where she will have gigs and have to go travel for three or four days and I'll be home with the kids and I'm very comfortable doing that. And then we'll switch like April, May, I'll be back out on the road touring and she'll be home on the weekends with the kids. But we're both home during the weeks. And I mean, I think what it comes down to is that the rhythms, as you said, are different in terms of the blocks of time that we are home, when we're home and things like that. But really, when you when it breaks down to hours, we're probably it probably works out around the same as most people's jobs. I mean, you know, except rather than leaving my kids eight hours a day, eight, nine to five, five days a week, I'm home with them, and then I'll leave for three or four days in a row, and I just pack all those work hours into overnights, go do them all at once, and come home. So it's just like the swings are a little different, but the general hours are probably about the same. And Sandra and I just have to prioritize back and forth. So I've had the priority for a little bit in the studio because I've been working on a record. And then as soon as I'm done, it'll be her turn, (laughs) you know, and you know, whatever she wants to work on next, be it, you know, she has a lot of ancillary projects and things that she works on outside of her own records. And, and then if it's ever like a summer or something, and nobody's working on a record, which it's been years since Neither of us have been working on a record during a summer, but when that does, the rare time when that does happen, we have nothing going on in the studio. Both of us have newish records in the market, so we don't work on, we're not working on our own thing. Then we'll do an EP together. We've done two of those. Um, in 12 years, we've done two of them, but, you know, and so I don't think this summer, maybe next summer, maybe next summer we'll, um, you know, so we'll do like a little half a record of songs we'll write and record together just for fun. And we, do, we like to stay busy, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, you've self-confessed, I think, saying that you're not prolific. But when I looked at your discography alone, it was like, wait a sec, from 2003 to 2013, 2012. I mean, there was like eight studio albums in there. Yeah. And that's not counting Solo Me or I don't think that's counting dem- the Democracy cover albums either.
2: I don't think it is. So. Yeah, well, you know, it's like I didn't used to think of myself as prolific. And, I, and I've never – and I think one distinction I've had to make is – I don't feel like I'm a very prolific writer, songwriter. I am a very prolific artist in terms of content. But see, that includes, like, which is to say I stay in the studio all the time. I'm constantly generating content. But the Democracy Records were collections of cover songs, so I didn't write any of those. The writing has usually been the harder part for me. That's what takes longer. It's harder. It requires a different level of intentionality I'm the kind of guy who wants a bit I need I need a big picture. If I'm writing songs, I need a big picture of why, why I'm writing the songs and what they're about, how they relate one to the other. What is the big thing I'm saying with these 10 songs? I'm not saying 10 things, I'm saying one thing. I'm taking 10 songs to say it. So I don't just randomly write songs. I write songs when it's time to write songs, which means I'm making an album. And when I'm not making an album, I don't write. So I'll go for 8 straight months, 12 straight months and not write one song. That's why I don't feel prolific. that time, I'll be producing other projects. I'll be doing remix albums for other artists. I'll be doing cover, you know, I'll be recording all kinds of other things. So as a producer, I am very, I I have to accept the fact that I am very prolific. There's a lot that comes out of our studio. As a writer, I still don't feel, I feel more prolific in the last 12 months to the current day than I ever have in my career. I'm having a real boom right now in terms of songwriting, just in, in sheer volume. But this is the first time in my whole career that I've felt even even slightly prolific as a writer.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, I, w- I would have to say that myself. Coming in myself into being a fan or what I consider to be, you know, part of the Derek Webb tribe with <laughs> uh, The Ringing Bell was when I came in. And since then... To what uh stockholm syndrome and feedback and i mean sola me control and now the new record i mean that's those three things that you're you have worked on and released or are working on now have been like the most not to mention you just worked on sandra's album like that activity like i've seen constant activity from you which is great so
2: it has been I'm just so grateful i mean i'm just so grateful to be so busy you know i mean and, and i'm and i've produced you know like i produced uh some tracks for some other records during all that time. And yeah, we did Sanders' entire album while I was in the throes of recording, writing and recording solo me and control, which was a two year endeavor to make those two conceptualize and record those two albums. And literally the first week that I was touring control, which is right after it came out, I started writing for the record that I'm almost finished recording now. So control is not even, it's not even, I don't think four or five months old. Yeah and i'm already almost finished with another record
1: <laughs> that's not prolific
2: so which i said i'm i will accept that at this moment in my career i am a much more prolific songwriter than i've ever been comfortable admitting but on the on, on the sheer production side i definitely it's it's definitely felt like a renaissance
1: yeah Well, you've not just been so busy with the creative side of it. You've also been so busy with the business side of things, with noise trade. And that, I think, probably has to, with with the data that you've gotten from noise trade, I have to assume that that's really also freed you and Sandra, as well as all the artists that are on noise trade, up to really manage their time much better as well. Can you talk a little bit about what were the circumstances or thoughts that led to that initial experiment? that then was a catalyst for the creation of noise trade.
2: Absolutely. Well, so my being a hyper niche artist, I mean, I am just a niche inside of a niche. I mean, I'm, and like what I do is not for everybody, but it's very much for a select group of people. And that's just, that's just the way that's what, just what I do. And so I've never been super commercially ambitious, creatively very ambitious but not really commercially ambitious. I know I'm not going to sell a half million records. You know, I know I'm not going to be one of these big, I'm never going to chart on iTunes. I'm never going to, and I'm comfortable with that. I'm fine with that. I make a great career, never having to do any of that. But some years ago, I had this record called Mockingbird that came out, and this was the first record of mine that I did have a bit more ambition because it was political. It it just had some themes on it that I felt as though there were people who would resonate with this album who I know are not paying attention who don't know anything about me and are not paying attention to the kind of marketing that the label, you know, typically does. And so the record came out, it was received really well by my tribe who are, you know, just kind of a small but vibrant group who just support me no matter what. And, um, no matter how much marketing money is spent, they'll buy the records. And, um, so they bought it and the sales had kind of hit a trickle. I think we're about six months in to the sale of the record The marketing money was spent. We spent it on what we said we were going to spend it on and it worked to some extent and the tribe bought it and so marketing money was gone. Sales were pretty much coming to a halt and the label was talking to me about making another, the next record. But I wasn't really ready. I was like, you know, I I still really want to keep selling this one. I feel like there's a lot of people who would resonate with and enjoy this album who have not heard it. We haven't pushed it far enough out and I want them to hear it before I move on. And they said, well... That's fine, but the label, you know, that's fine, but we don't have any more money to spend on that, and that costs money typically. And so unless you can come up with some, some way to promote this album that doesn't cost any money, you know, we need to move on. We need to start thinking about the next one. So my manager and I, Sandra and I, all started to kind of think about it, kick ideas around. And I don't know how it really happened. I don't really remember. I remember when it crystallized, Sandra and I had been talking circles around it. We were driving home from some gig and we were at a Cracker Barrel and we were sitting at the Cracker Barrel and I was talking to Sandra about kind of how, what can we do? Maybe it was all stuff we had said, but she said it in a way that I hadn't heard it all together at that point. She said, well, what if you just gave away the record for free digitally for a few months, but gave it away for basically got email and zip codes for every one you gave away but then you also asked everybody who downloaded it to tell five people about it as part of the requirement to get it. And that way it, promote, it self-promotes. It's like a viral. And here's the thing. You got to remember, six years ago, whenever this was, it was crazy to give music away for free. It was insane. Nobody had done it. Radiohead hadn't done it. Prince hadn't done it. Nobody had done it. So it was there was no precedent for this. And it was really pretty insane. Like nobody, everybody thought you're crazy to do it. But then she was like, you know, because that way if you give it away for free, the people who would get it for free are people who would not have bought it. You're not losing any money because those people wouldn't have bought it because they're not buying it now. They're they're never going to hear about it. The only way they're going to hear about it is if their friends tell them about it. And so that's how this would work. Um, So you're not losing any money because this is money you're never going to make. So better to get something and get their information and then be able to follow up with them and get them to come out to your shows or get them to buy your next record. You know, that's going to be you know, people who going you're going to get on the radar who never, ever, ever would have found you otherwise. And that made sense to me. And, you know, so we talked about it. I went to the, the label who were owned by Sony and said, would you let us do this? And lo and behold, that's the real miracle. Of the story is that they let me do it. Um, so for three months, we gave away the record for free, for email, email and a zip code. The, and then the other part that we did would not work today, but it did then where we had people put in email addresses of five friends to tell their five friends about it. Now we only kept the emails of the people who actually downloaded the music. So their five friends who they put in email addresses for, we didn't keep those email addresses. We didn't even see those. That was just used to send their little note they wrote to those five friends to say, Hey, you should check this out. We didn't keep any of those. Only if those people clicked back, you know, came back and downloaded it for themselves. Did we get their information? So I think I had about five thousand people, maybe fewer, four four thousand people on an email list that I had built up in my career up to that point in five years. That's where we started. We told those people about it. Go download the record if you don't have it. If you do, download it again just to tell your friends about it. You know, you know, tell your friends to download it. And that's what we did. And we did it for three months. At the end of three months, we had eighty five thousand people who downloaded the album, and that is just a lot more people than I'd ever had buy any of my albums. I mean, I knew these were a lot of new fans. So this worked. It worked like crazy. And one of the first things I learned when I looked at the info was, where are all these fans who I've never known about before now or who are new fans? One of the things we learned immediately was when we looked at the information, looked at the zip codes, that two of the cities where I'd given away the most albums were cities I'd never toured in as a solo artist. So New York and LA, I'd never played a show. I'm a little folk singer. I don't have any business going to New York and LA. You know, those are competitive cities for music, but the numbers don't lie. So I was like, all right, let's see if this information is worth money. Like we think it is, you know, if really what, what this could really be, what it could really mean. So, uh, my best friend lives in, in LA. So we booked a show. I told my booking, I want any gig at any venue for any money on any night of the week in Los Angeles. I don't care what it is. Just get me anything. So they got me a Wednesday night at the knitting factory on Hollywood Boulevard, um, I bought the flight, stayed with my buddy in LA, flew out there. I had no idea what was going to happen. We promoted the show only to the people on that list, only to the people who downloaded that record. And I remember we had about 2,200 people within 15 miles of that venue because that we, we sorted it out by zip code. So by zip code of that venue, we had 2,200 people, we could tell, um, who were in proximity. We promoted it two weeks before the show. Sent an email. Hope you love the record. I'm going to come to LA. Please come out. Two days before the show, another email. Just a reminder, please come out to the show. No idea what was going to happen. The room held about 100 people. So I get there. I went up to the venue to play my show. No idea what's going to happen. There's a line down the block. And I'm like, whoa, I wonder who's playing tonight. You know, I mean, it's crazy. Look at all these people. They were there for me. I mean, it was crazy. We turned away two times the capacity of the room that night. And if this could work for me, this could work for anybody. I did the same thing in New York you know, we, we, we sold the room out completely and turned, turned people away. And so, yeah, this has enabled me, and this is still the basic model of how noise trade works. We facilitate artists giving away music for free in exchange for information, emails and zip codes. And then we pass that on to the artists and they can figure out where are their fans. They can be smarter about where they play, you know, stop playing for rooms that are empty and start playing for rooms full of your fans, make sure your fans are in there. It's changed my whole career. And that, you know that's absolutely facilitated so much of my ability and Sanders ability to be smarter with how we tour, to make better money, to tour less and make the same money. You know, we're able to do that. And so it's, it's just changed my whole career.
1: What kind of an experience have you had or heard of from the artists or bands that are using it?
2: So noise trade is, I don't know how many years old. It's four or five years old, five, four years old. And it's been around just long enough to have been used you know, pretty regularly by some bands who have been around long enough to have kind of had time to work their way up and and, and really use it. And we have bands like um, the Civil Wars, mm-hmm. you know, when they were first getting started, they put up a live show they'd recorded at Eddie's Attic in Atlanta in Decatur. And they gave that away for a while and, you know, collected a bunch of fan information that helped propel them at the beginning of their career. We've had. You know, just a, a handful, Katie Herzig, we've had a handful of bands who started using it when they were first getting started, because we because we were kind of showed up in the market right around that same time, who now are very serious touring bands, very serious. And and as I've spoken to a lot of my friends, it feels like Noise Trade has become part of one one of the default set of tools that you use to help build up your fan base and get to where you can really get out there. And tour and get out there and and know where your fans are, sell your records. It feels to me like it's becoming part of the vernacular um, for a lot of artists and now for a lot of major label artists. I mean, we went from having a few dozen artists in our first few weeks when we first launched. Now we have, you know, 15 plus thousand artists on our site giving away music. It's free to sign up for any artist. And, you know, we give away, you know, three or four hundred thousand full albums a month. You know, We as a company have an email list of almost a million people who get a weekly email from us featuring the music that we think is the best stuff we have every week. We're in a really unique position to help push these bands out. Literally, if you look back on Noise Trade's big features, bands that we've jumped behind, that we believed in, that we kind of glimpsed as really going somewhere and that we really had something unique – And we will feature them and we will talk about them and we'll push a lot of downloads for them. If you look at our last year, 18 months of the bands we featured at the time, a lot of people didn't know about those bands are all sitting all over the top 50 of iTunes right now. Now I'm not saying, and some of whom have gone, you know, like we had fun. Uh, we did a feature for fun last year and they're one of the biggest bands around right now. And I'm not saying that, you know, same could go for, you could, could be said for the Civil Wars or a lot of other bands we've had. And I'm not saying that that was Noise Trade's doing. What I am saying is I feel as though Noise Trade has become part of the tool set that a lot of bands are using. It's one of a handful of things, but it is consistently one of a handful of things that these bands are using to really propel themselves to where, to where they are now. And, um, I, you know, I think we've played some role in that. And I could not be more proud, you know, of uh, of our little company. I mean, it's like we don't have a CEO, we don't have an office. We are just a little fledgling, you know, bootstrap startup, and but we're profitable, and we've survived five years with VC backed competition. And I'm I I'm just couldn't be more proud of our little company.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely tapping into. The ability to take, you know, the mixtape and the passing it to your friends to the next level because of the technology and how that works itself into culture. Speaking of technology and culture, I'd love to touch on your last album slash albums, Control and Sola Me, a little bit with how they talk about culture and technology.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, so for me, I'm the kind of artist who just is always looking around for coordinates, so to speak. I'm always looking around for like what is the next big thing that I feel like needs to be talked about. Like what is it either in my own life or in or in my community, me and my friends, what are the things that we're talking about that feel important, that need to be discussed, that need to be brought to the attention of more people and I'm you know, which is really the job description of an artist to look at the world and tell you what they see. And that's what I do. And that's taken you know, the answer to that question of what, what do you see when you look at the world, for me, that answer has been different many times over my career. And so I've, but I always feel like I'm trying to be intentional about bringing something up that I think is important, bringing a conversation to light, putting it out there, at least raising questions that I think are important. And this time around, last year and the year before, I was starting to get really concerned looking at my own life looking at the lives of my friends, looking at culture, Western culture, in the way that we are demonstrating all of the symptoms of addiction with the way that we use technology. And yet we don't think about it or talk about it like it's addiction. We don't think about it or talk about it like it's something that we might need to consider how to put limits on or where to put guardrails around it or where to carve out places in our lives and our families where technology is not allowed Um, we're not really considering what we're giving up for what we're getting with all this new technology. And technology is becoming more sophisticated every year. You know, It's getting more powerful and more sophisticated. And this felt like the moment for me that this needed to be talked about. We needed to talk about this. This could be a moment where we could have a meaningful conversation about the role that we wish technology to play in our lives. And in a few years from now, with the rate that things are going, it's gonna get harder and harder and harder to have that conversation and have it really be meaningful because technology is just so inevitable. And it's just, it's such a big part of how the world goes around. We won't be able to call it into question in a few years. It'll be hard to survive without it. And so this felt like still, like like this was a moment where there was still time to think about it, to talk about it, for me to cause a little disruption in my own life because I'm a confessed technology addict. So this hits me harder than it hits anybody which is probably one of the reasons that I wrote the record. Rather than writing it in a confessional way, like a lot of my records are, I chose to write it from the perspective of a character. So the whole album control is basically a story. It's a fictional, you know, three-act narrative from the perspective of a character who goes through this experience with technology. And that's how I felt like I had to write it to be as honest as I needed to be, um, as confessional as I felt like I needed to be.
1: So it ended up kind of being like a mirror in a way.
2: Yeah. It seems like it's my least personal or autobiographical album because it's, because I think people could probably imagine I'm very detached from it because it's written, again, from this character perspective. So it's not me, first person, confessing these things. But in truth, it's probably my most, easily my most autobiographical album. It's easily my most, me at my most vulnerable. But I know it's hard to kind of see that because of the way that we did it. But it also felt to me like my only consideration is not just the message. I'm also making a piece of art. And it felt to me like the most interesting way, the most challenging and interesting, engaging way to make it, to base it on a story. So, you know, I wrote a short story with a few friends of mine. And then I basically very strictly held the album's content to telling that story. And for me, just as a creative, just as a creator and as a musician, as a writer, that was such an interesting and engaging way for me to write those songs. I had never done anything like that before. And it was a thrilling like, creative experience and process. And uh, there are things that I learned making this album, these albums, that I will take with me into everything I will write, everything I will record, everything I will make for the rest of my career. It had that much of an impact on me. Like, like creatively problem solving and figuring out how to pull it off I learned an incredible amount of stuff. So it was really yeah. an
1: experience. I could go on forever talking about how Control and Solo Me fit together. You've got a great blog post that kind of parses that out a bit, as well as a link to go get the short fictional story of, well, of both albums, uh, as well as where they can download the Solo Me album for free.
2: Yes. So if you go to, so, so Solo Me is basically an integral part of the of the narrative of the story being told it kind of tells a parallel story of another character. And when you put the two stories together and we've crafted the two albums to actually flow one right into the other, um, they actually tell a bigger story with them with there's implications on the end of the story that are pretty, that are pretty profound if you give yourself to it and you really listen to it and you think about it. So control is available is available everywhere. People buy albums. I mean, you can go to iTunes or Amazon or Derek You can buy it. It's for sale. Uh, Solo Me is free, completely for free. So if you go to solame.com, uh, which is S-O-L-A-M-I.com, M-I you can just click a link and get the download of the Solo album totally for free. And then if you go to my website, which is DerekWebb.com, there's a link to my blog, which is a Tumblr blog, where I basically explain how the two albums are connected give you a little more to go on in terms of how to combine the two albums and kind of what that's all about. And there's also, you can read the, uh, the complete fictional short story behind the two albums that I've written. And that'll give you even more to go on. It's, it definitely requires some attention. I know that attention is in short supply, attention currency is in short supply, uh, for most people. And so I know that's asking a lot, but you know, it's art. And sometimes, you know, if you really want to get something out of it, you have to give something to it. And so if you have the time, you know it's uh, it, you know I, I I would love for people to do that. If not though, the Solomi album, we really tried to craft these albums to to be great records just on their own. So I mean, I would love for people just to listen to the Soul of Me record. I've got friends tell me that they you know work out to it and stuff. You know, it's more like electronic, and people might dig that. And I would love for people just to listen to the records just as records. But if you want to go deeper, there's definitely a lot of resources, things you could read that will kind of pull you in further. And, and there's a lot to discover there.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I'm glad you aren't really digging into all of the ins and outs of those two albums because part of the experience for me, the enjoyment of the experience, I guess I should say for those albums separately as well as putting them together was first experiencing them separately and then together and kind of getting that mind-blow moment of oh my gosh, I get what's going on here and it's a little bit f- happy and sad and freaky all at the same time.
2: And- I'm so grateful. I mean, I mean that that's kind of that's how we hoped to craft the whole project was that people could love and connect with the albums individually and understand them on their own. And then if they were willing to invest what was required in terms of time that they'd be able to discover this connection and suddenly realize that both albums change each other, their meanings change when you put them together in the way that we had crafted and to have to basically kind of put that moment, make that moment possible and hope that people would have that moment. That's exactly what, why we did it. I mean, that's why we crafted it. That's why we, that's what we hoped for. That's what we imagined happening for people. And I love that, that you did experience it that way. And I love that, um, that you enjoyed that, you know, that's why we, that's why we did it. Yeah. So I hope people will, will do that. I hope that, you know, but if, but if not, I just, I just hope people enjoy the music, you know?
1: Yeah. And if anybody out there needs help with understanding what's going on there, I tweet me, I'll, I'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so and and right now uh and i'll put links to all this stuff in the show notes of this so people can find it fairly easy to go grab all the free stuff and and d- get directed to it but um in closing you're still giving away right now your first record as you're working on your new record which is kind of a sort of sequel
2: yes so my first record 10 years ago was called she must not shall go free which I'm giving away right now. You can go to noise Trade. I'm not only the owner, I'm also a client. Um, you can go to noisetradecom slash Derek Webb. I mean, you can just go to noise Trade and search for, for me, but the record is there. It's for, It's the whole records for free. I want to make sure everybody has my first record. And it was a record focus. As as I said earlier, it's a record that's very much focused on the church. It was me looking at the church and asking questions like, what is my role in the church? What is the church's role in culture? what are the implications of the answers to those questions? And so I was asking a lot of those questions, the record I'm working on right now, which is called, I was wrong. I'm sorry. And I
1: love you. I love that title by the way,
2: uh, is very much the sequel to my first record. This is me thinking 10 years later about how important that record was for me and for a lot. And for some of my friends and, um, it was a formative time. It was a formative album for me and a real connection point. And, I started to think as I was just reminiscing about it being ten years past since it, a lot's changed in ten years. Uh, I'm not the same person I was ten years ago, and if I was to essentially go at those same questions again, but ten years later, how would my answers be different? And that just immediately sounded like like an opportunity like i I immediately decided I must make this album, I must make what is essentially a follow up to my first album, a sequel to my first album because that just seemed way too interesting. And as soon as I started to explore it from a songwriting standpoint, songs just started coming. And so like it really wanted to be made <laughs> and uh, I could not stop it. And so that record is going to be out later this year. In in April and May I'm going to be touring my first album, which I've never done. Even the rec- the year it came out, I didn't tour it. But I'm going to be going on the road playing playing the entire first album, my entire first album every night. Uh, with uh, a musician, uh, Kenny Meeks, who helped produce and played with me on that album. So April, May, we'll be doing that. And then just shortly thereafter, the new album will come out. And uh, so I hope people will go download my first record so that they have some context for the new record when it comes out.
1: Very excited. I mean, seriously, like you said, you're in a very high activity range right now. And being part of your tribe, I'm so excited for you.
2: Oh, man. Well, so. I'm just so grateful you're still there. You know, I, will, I, don't, I would have no career without the support of, uh, my proud, my few.
1: (laughs) Well, Derek, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an awesome privilege to be able to talk to you for a while. Obviously I would love to ask you tons of other questions about lots of other stuff, but I'll do that sometime when I see you live at a concert.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll do it. Well, this will not be, I have a feeling our only time we'll do this. So we'll do this again sometime. Sweet. Thank you so much,
1: Eric. No problem. Well, that wraps up another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I had an awesome time with this episode, and I hope you did too. I hope that if you were already a fan of Derek's, that you found out some stuff you didn't know and just really got to you know dig deeper into being a fan, and uh, like me. And I hope that if you didn't know about Derek, that you go... Literally go to beyondthetodolist.com slash 22 and go to the show notes for this episode and go grab the, the links to the free stuff that you can grab as well as the links to all the other stuff. If you finished this episode and you've listened to this far and you found out about Derek for the first time and you like his music, let him know you heard about it here by tweeting him at D-E-R-E-K-W-E-B-B on Twitter and let me know too at E-R-I-K-J-F-I-S-H-E-R. Thanks again, everybody. Talk to you next time. Beyond the To-Do List is a proud member of Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx. Find more great podcasts like How to Podcast, Clean Comedy, Once Upon a Time, Christian Worldview, and more at noodle.mx. Think, laugh, and succeed by subscribing to our podcasts at noodle.mx.